Amen. As we're turning there, it's good to be together as the church. Uh, just my heart is filled after last week and just so thankful for this church, for your affirmation and love for me, and excited to see how God works in our midst as he continues to grow us into the image of Jesus Christ. Um, we're, we're back in Philippians this morning, which you're turning there now. Uh, as Before we go to Philippians, let us just take a few minutes together and go to God in prayer. We, we are his body. We are the body of Christ. And if Christ is our head, then it is right that we take our needs to him. Let's do that together right now. Almighty God, we come before you. We thank you that you love us. Father, you are all sovereign, you are all powerful, you are all good, and we are sinners. We have wronged you, and even in that, you have chosen to love us in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that today. And as we come together today as a congregation, we come and we bring our needs before you, oh God. We recognize that, that we need that we are not independent, but rather dependent on you. Father, I, I pray that you would work in our midst as a congregation. God, I pray that you would work to grow us up together in Christ. Father, I pray that you would unify us, different people, diverse people, into, a, into one people, into one body together, we pray. Father, we pray that Today, you would work in us through your word, God. We pray that you would teach us, that you would train us, that you would correct us, that you would rebuke us where appropriate. Father, we pray that your word would shape us and shape our congregation today. Father, we pray for those who are hurting in our midst. Father, we, we know that a church of our size, that there are those who are are struggling with depression, that those are struggling with, with deep sorrow that they are walking through. We ask that you would be with those members of our body today, oh God. We pray that this church would come around those who are hurting and would walk with them in love and build them up in Christ. Father, we pray this morning for the Shaw family. We thank you for the life and testimony of Bob Shaw. We thank you, God, that, that we understand that he knew Christ, that he was found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but looking to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We praise you for that, and we trust him into your hands. Father, we pray for our dear sister Suzanne as she mourns the loss of her husband. Father, would you calm her? Would you strengthen her? Would you hold her? Father, would she run to you during this time, her rock and her strength and her strong tower? Father, we pray for their family. We pray for the whole Shaw family. We pray that together that they would look to Christ during this time and that you would comfort their grieving hearts, we pray. Father, we, we thank you that we are here today as a church that wants to gather around the gospel, as we see in your text, and we thank you that we are not the only church that does this. Father, we praise you that there are other churches right now that are together 
sitting under your word throughout this state and this county. And we pray that you would be with them. Father, we pray that the gospel would go out clearly through many other congregations in this land. Father, we thank you for Pastor Jose Abea and for his ministry to our body last week. And we pray right now for Providence Road Church in Miami. God, would you bless that church? Would you help them to grow? Would you help their numbers to grow, but also their depth of love to grow? We pray that even now, as the word is preached there in that church, that it would be faithful to scripture, that you would build up the saints there. Father, we also remember that you are a global God. You are not a tribal deity. You are not just our God, but you are the God of this whole world. And so we pray that you would be at work across this world. We pray that you would be work at work in the country of Ukraine. God, we pray that you'd be at work in the country of Russia. We pray for the Christians that are right now in Russia and the, the pastors that are there facing difficult times. Father, we pray for the good work of Ecclesia Russia and that you would, you would build up that church-centered work, that, that Christians in that country would be faithful to you despite any difficult choices that they are making this week. We, we plead that you would work in that country. And now, O oh God, work in us and work in our hearts. Work through me, I pray, all for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, do you do enough? Are you enough? Answer, answer that question for yourself right now. Not with what you know your pastor would want you to say is theologically correct. But answer it with what you really believe deep down in your heart. Maybe what you rarely talk about. When you finally lay your head down on your pillow after the end of a, a long day and you exhale, would you say that you had done enough? Or consider your final day on earth. Uh, this week, millions of people together watched as Queen Elizabeth's coffin was lowered into the royal vault at Windsor Castle, and we were all reminded that we will all eventually face the day when our lives also end. When you lie on your deathbed, and in your final moments, will you be able to say that you had done enough? If you're a visitor with us here today, chances are you might have had some hesitation even coming into a room like this, because chances are a preacher like me would stand behind a pulpit like this and tell you once again that you are not doing enough, and you have enough guilt in your life already. Why would you come listen to that again? I want us to think about that this morning. You know, one of my favorite movies is the movie Chariots of Fire. It's an old classic favorite about the competition of the 1924 Olympic Games. And one of the key sub-themes in that movie is the drive for success and for confidence. Some of the runners who were competing were working to prove that they were enough. One of the runners, Harold Abrahams, is an Olympic sprinter, and he runs the 100-meter sprints. And he often talks about this, this need for confidence. 
in doing enough. He says it eloquently in a, a often quoted line, admitting that he, he never really knows if he's enough. This is what he says as he sighs. He says, contentment, I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? How many of us are wondering if we're enough and our lives are like that runner with 10 lonely seconds where we run down the corridor of life seeking to justify that we have done enough, seeking for that confidence. Well, where do Christians find their confidence? If you're a Christian here today, the instinct of your heart when faced with that question, did you do enough, is what our passage is going to be talking about today. It's going to be helping us with this. Paul has been writing a letter to the church at Philippi, and today we come to chapter 3 in Philippians. If you haven't already turned there, we'll be in verses 1 through 11 today, and we come today to a new section in the letter where Paul turns his attention to a subject matter that he thinks the church needs to think about and consider. So here's the outline for today. This is what I'm going to be talking through. We're going to be answering the question, where do we find our confidence? Paul says, not in our flesh, but in knowing Christ and having his righteousness, which brings new life. That's what I'm going to be describing today. So let's read the text first. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. Paul writes this. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As Paul begins this new section, he pauses to remind the church to rejoice in the Lord. In verse 1. Now this isn't the first time he said this. By my count, this is about the tenth time he's encouraged 
joy in this letter. And there's several more still to come. So he admits here in verse 1 that he keeps saying the same thing. He's not embarrassed to remind the church and to remind us. It's for our good. It's for our safety. We'll talk more specifically about this command for joy in the next chapter. But notice here as we head into this section that he says, rejoice in the Lord. He adds this qualifier because our joy is to be one that is in the Lord. The Lord here refers to Jesus Christ. Our joy is to be found in Christ. This is the direction that the text is going today. We're going to see that, the, that there's a joy in gaining the treasure of Jesus Christ. So let's move forward. Where should we find our confidence? This is the question of the text. Point number one, not in our flesh. Verses two through five. In order for Paul to explain that our confidence is not in the flesh, he begins with a warning of those who do place their confidence in the flesh that they have done enough. Look at verse 2 again. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out. So be on watch for these people. Who are these people that Paul's warning about? Well, clearly Paul's warning is serious if he's going to call them unclean dogs or evildoers. What are they doing? Notice he says they mutilate the flesh. Now, this is just a play on words, and it's related to circumcision, the Old Testament sign of God's people. Apparently, these people were from the group that we see throughout the New Testament, those who were trusting in their circumcision for righteousness. They were what Paul will talk about in a minute, down in verse 9. Those who had righteousness on their own that comes under the law. Paul is calling out this false trust in circumcision. He calls this a mutilation. It's, it's a twisting. It's a disfiguring of the picture of circumcision, the sign of the old covenant. So he calls those that, that trust in this, that do this, evildoers. He even calls them Dogs, which, by the way, is interesting because typically Jews would consider Gentiles unclean dogs. But here, Paul seems to be turning that around and saying, if the Jews are going to trust in circumcision, they are the ones that are unclean dogs. How fascinating. So then in verse 3, he takes and compares these evildoers to those who are true followers of God. Look at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul talks about who is truly the circumcision. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant sign of physical circumcision had been fulfilled in Christ. And now Paul says that the real circumcision is a setting apart by faith. So who are those that are set apart? Verse 3, they are those that worship the Spirit of God. They are those that glory in Jesus Christ. They are not glorying in their works of physical circumcision. 
they are, placed, they are not placing their, their confidence in the flesh. In this new covenant, they are glorying in the work of Jesus Christ. And so, if you get the idea here, we see two camps. In verse 2, those who are only physically circumcised and trusting in their own works. And then verse 3, those who are spiritually circumcised, that is, trusting in the work of Christ. So Paul tells the Philippians to look out for these evildoers. Now, I'm just guessing that most of you here in Boynton Beach don't have any pressure to be circumcised for your salvation. Uh, if I'm wrong about that, talk to me after the service. It sounds like you have an interesting story to tell me about. But uh, I do believe, though, that the warning that we see here, this, this watching out for those who would add to the gospel, is still a, a danger for us today. See, when you confuse the sign of our faith with the faith itself, you're committing the same mistake they were. Let me, let me just give you just briefly two examples that you might come up against. First of all, baptism. Baptism is very important, right? It's a, it's a good command. It is a necessary first step of obedience. It's what a church always does to affirm a new believer's profession of faith. But when you confuse physical baptism to be what is actually washing away your sin before God, you are adding to the gospel. You're doing the same thing they did here. Or think about the Lord's Supper. We're going to practice this in just a few minutes when we take the Lord's Supper together. Our neighbors in the Roman Catholic Church or other denominations take the Lord's Supper thinking that eating the bread and drinking the wine is giving a special grace to, to forgive us our sins. And when this is done, it is confusing the sign of our faith with the faith itself. Paul says, look out for this. Look out for those who do this. We are saved through faith alone and in Christ alone. Well, this becomes personal for Paul. This doesn't merely happen with just the sign of circumcision or the sign of the baptism or Lord's Supper. No, at the end of verse 3, he had acknowledged that we put no confidence in the flesh. This seems to trigger some thinking for Paul. This causes him to reflect. Look at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, so here it's almost like there's a conversation going on. Like someone is there objecting to Paul's claim that he doesn't put confidence in the flesh, and he doesn't find rest in himself. And they say, fine, Paul, you don't, but, but we as Jews, we have good reason to place our confidence in the flesh. And, and then Paul responds to them, well, wait, look at my resume. I have even more reason to do this. Think of what this might be like. We've just moved to Florida, my family and I, and my youngest son, Noah, has started taking swimming lessons. He's adorable. He's so dedicated. And after just a few lessons, 
he is just immediately confident that he now knows how to swim. But he can't. Uh, he uh, jumps in the water and he flails about, and he's kind of perfected the art of the submarine descent straight down into water. Now, imagine that my son Noah stood here and said to you, I'm not going to take much confidence in my awesome swimming abilities. Well, you would look at him and say, well, that's easy for you to say, Noah. You can't swim, buddy, right? You shouldn't be take, tempted to take confidence yet in what you can do. But then imagine that instead you're talking to the Olympic swimmer, Michael Phelps. And imagine he stood here and he said to you, I'm careful to never take pride in my ability to swim. Well, then you would say, oh, okay, wait a second. You're not putting confidence where you could put confidence. This is something what's happening here with Paul. Paul says, you think you have reason to rest in what you do? Oh, let me show you how easy it would be for me to rest in what I do. And then he lists potential reasons for his confidence. His resume in verses 5 through 6. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here we have seven points, the, the number of perfection. And, and Paul isn't bragging that he had it all. It's just showing why he, if anyone, could be tempted to rest in what he does. The first half of these are about who he is. And then the, the second half of these, we'll notice, are about what he's done. And he says he doesn't find himself in who he is, nor in what he's done. Look at them briefly. First he says, I am circumcised on the eighth day. The very thing the others were bragging about he says, I have downright to the day. Before any Philippian church had even heard about Jesus, he was ceremonially on track with what he should be doing. Perhaps, I don't know, in our world, uh, he was born in the church, and he was dedicated in the church, and he's never left the church. But then he says, he is of the people of Israel. That is, he was part of the chosen and set-apart people of God. He says he is of the tribe of Benjamin. So he could have pride in his heritage. Benjamin was, a, was loved in a special way, if you remember, by Jacob. The tribe of Benjamin received a special blessing by Moses in Deuteronomy 33, I believe. The, the, the tribe of Benjamin produced Israel's first king, King Saul. And the list goes on. The point is, is that with his family and his tribe, he had room for pride in his heritage. Then he says he is a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was true blood. He wasn't a Greek-speaking Jew. He wasn't a Jew off in the diaspora. No, he wasn't even an outsider who had joined in as a God-fearing Jew. As one commentator wrote, he was a pure Hebrew stock. 
all together, Paul could have boasted so easily in these things of who he was. And then he turns to what he's achieved. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, out of any group, had the highest respect for the law, for God's word. Here, I don't even think this is meant to be negative. We're often rightly negative on the Pharisees. I think he's actually pointing out that in his relation to the law, his view of the law of God could not be higher. He was carefully dedicated to the most dedicated group in respecting God's word. Wow. Uh, perhaps in, in today's world, imagine that this is someone who just knows their Bible frontward and backwards. A good thing, by the way. Or uh, someone who comes to Awana every week and comes to Sunday school every week and has memorized every passage from the law of God without error and rests in that. He says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. This is fascinating. Paul was zealous. This word literally means he had an earnest concern. So he was sincere. His zeal was so sincere, it was so real before God, that before he had met Christ on the Damascus Road, he understood, when he understood the church was against God, he did all his, that he could to just shut it down. That's what he spent his life on. If anyone could rely on the proof of their sincerity, their zeal, it was Paul. By the way, maybe some of you today don't rely on being good, but on being sincere. You know, you, you might know to yourself that you don't live perfectly, fine, but at least you really, really mean well. At least you really, really try hard. We live in a day where sincerity is often ultimate. And Paul here contradicts that religion of our culture. Please hear me clearly. The God of the Bible is not pleased by merely good intentions. Sincerity before God, zeal before God, is not enough to please him. Lastly, he says, as to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In moral faithfulness to the Torah, he had no blemishes on his record. He's, he's not saying here, I believe, that he's never sinned, but he's like the rich young ruler who came before Jesus and said, I haven't misstepped under the law. I've kept all the Ten Commandments. And so in all of these, Paul says, if anyone has reason to have confidence in what you do or what you, who you are, it's me. Please notice, by the way, this whole list that I just walked through, most of them are good things. Living rightly under the law, loving the law, being zealous for God, being in Israel, and if you were an old covenant Jew, being circumcised. All of these were good things. But where do we find our confidence? Not in the flesh. Not in the flesh. We do not find our confidence in the flesh. 
Dane Ortland writes this. He says, picture a 12-year-old boy growing up in a healthy, loving family. As he matures, through no fault of his parents, he finds himself trying to figure out how to really assure himself a place in the family. One week, he tries to create a new birth certificate for himself. The next week, he determines to spend all his extra time scrubbing the kitchen clean. The following week, he determines to do all he can to imitate his dad. One day, his parents question this strange behavior. I'm just doing all I can to secure my place in the family, guys. Well, how would his family, how would his father respond? I think he'd say, calm yourself, my dear son. There is nothing you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You are our son, period. You didn't do anything at the start to get into the family, and you can't do anything to get out of our family. Live your life knowing your sonship is settled and irreversible. We have a chronic tendency to function out of a subtle belief that our obedience strengthens the love of God. We act like that 12-year-old son. And so Paul says, we do not find our confidence in the flesh. Oh, child of God, you who once came to Christ as a beggar because you knew that you didn't have enough. Have you forgotten that Christ loves you today because not because of what you do? Have you forgotten that Christ does not wait for you to be good enough? It isn't your resume of good works before Christ. It isn't in how good your sincerity is. It isn't in how deeply you love scripture that makes him love you. It isn't in what you do. So what is it? Where do we find our confidence? Not in the flesh, but number two, in knowing Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. This is glorious. Look at 7 and 8. He, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Four times here, Paul explains this, this exchange that's happening between what he loses and what he gets. Do you see that there? Do you see him being redundant in the text? This exchange begins with losing everything he had done. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Verse 8, I, covered, I counted everything as loss. Again, I suffered the loss of all things. And then I counted them as rubbish. So whatever gain he had, everything he could count, all of his good standing before God, all of the good works he had just admitted to, 
really, everything he was known for, his very identity in life, he considered as nothing. He happily considers it, verse 8, as garbage, as rubbish. So to get our attention, Paul famously uses actually a very strong word here, which, which the ESV translates as rubbish, or the King James Version translates as dung. It's actually, by the way, uh, heavier than that. It's, it's a very heavy word in the original. Let, let me take a pastoral sidebar here. Some people say that this strong word gives us a model for how we should sometimes use strong, colorful language. And I would just note at this point in the text that yes, if you are an apostle and you are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and you are talking about the most important thing in the universe, then I think you can probably consider very strong, colorful language like Paul does here. But for the rest of us here today, we should take seriously Jesus' warning in Matthew that we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. All right, end of sidebar, back to verses 8 and 9. So Paul says that all of this, all that he did, is considered as rubbish, as garbage, as completely worthless. Friends, in one sense, any good that you do out of your flesh before God is like rubbish. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. But this is especially true when you consider what he's exchanging it for. I count all things to be as lost for what? What's the purpose of the text? Verse 7, for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of Christ. Again, in verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. There is an exchange going on here. You cannot find confidence in Christ if you are still finding confidence in your flesh. Only those who are spiritually bankrupt before God can truly know Christ. Only those who are ready to suffer the loss of all things. I wonder if Paul here might have been writing this, reflecting on the Beatitudes. You remember what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt of this world, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those that come before Christ with nothing in our hands to bring are those that can see Christ with surpassing worth. Christ here is the real treasure. The treasure is not the good that you do. Or Jesus said it another way. He said, imagine that a man goes out to a field and he finds an abandoned treasure. He, what will he do? He'll cover the treasure back up and he'll run off and he'll go back to his house and he'll start selling every single thing that he has every scrap of any property that he has. He will liquidate his assets to the point where he is dirt poor, right? So that he can then go and he can buy that field because the treasure is so great. This is Christ. Christ is the treasure. 
To live is Christ. To die is gain. Knowing Christ is of surpassing worth or exceptional value. Christ is supremely good. John Piper says it this way in his, his book, God is the Gospel. He says, The highest, best, final, and decisive good of the Gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ, revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. Praise God. Friends, is Christ of surpassing worth to you? Notice we, we, gain, we gain knowing Christ. We don't just gain knowing about Christ. We don't just receive his benefits. No, we know him. More on that in just a few moments. And this gives Paul a new identity there at the end of the passage. To be found in him, verse 9. He is not found in being a Hebrew of Hebrews anymore. He is not found in fundamentally being a Benjaminite. He is not found in being a people of Israel. He is found in Christ. Well, let's move on. Where should we find our confidence? Not in our flesh, but in knowing Christ and having his righteousness. Look at verse 9. We read there, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right, so here we see two types of righteousness that Paul seems to be comparing, two types of righteousness that, that Paul could rest himself in. The first is a supposed righteousness. The second is a, a real and a true righteousness. The first, Paul says, is of my own, as if he could possibly manufacture it, or as if he could possibly attain it. The second is a foreign righteousness. It's an imported righteousness from another place. It's an alien righteousness. It's, it's from outside of him. Do you see it in the text there? It's from God. The first comes through the law. That is, do enough and you will be righteous. The second comes through faith in Christ. That is, look to Christ who is righteous, really righteous, truly righteous. The first depends on doing, doing, doing. The second depends on faith. Paul says he is found in Christ and therefore trusts Christ's righteousness. Earlier I, I mentioned this week's funeral of Queen Elizabeth as a reminder that we will all face death. I found it fascinating to read how Rebecca McLaughlin, a, a Christian writer, watched this funeral and she reflected. This is what she wrote. She said, it doesn't matter how many mourners you have when you die. It doesn't matter how many songs or pipes are played when you die. It doesn't matter how many soldiers march when you die. I would add, it doesn't matter if the whole world thinks you did well at your job when you die. What matters is did you trust 
Christ? Is he your righteousness? If you're not a Christian, please, just let me ask you, think on this today. Your creator God requires perfect righteousness. And you and I have not met that requirement. No, how, no matter how much good you think that you have done, you must admit you have sinned against God. You have done wrong. And you've done it many times, repeatedly, if you're honest with yourself. You can't say that you've had perfect righteousness. Because of that, we all deserve death. As others have said, the good news of the gospel is that the righteousness that God requires, he also supplies. Praise God. Jesus lived and died on the cross, paying for our sin, and offered us his righteous obedience. So that if you come to Christ today in faith, he will make you righteous. He will just give you his righteousness. When you close your eyes on your deathbed, either you will say, I hope I was enough. You will find yourself dreadfully wrong. Or you will say, Christ is enough. And you will find yourself in Christ. Will you look to Christ today? Talk to someone here today in this church to find out more about how to trust in Christ. Find any leader in this church or a member. Or find me. I'll be standing in the back by the doors on the way out. But let me just urge you, put your trust in Christ today. To the Christians that are here, friends, this is why we sing all the time. In Christ alone, our hope is found. We have got to remind ourselves again and again and again of this truth. This is why we sing in that song, He is a gift of love and of righteousness. Christian, have you thanked God for the righteousness that you have in Christ recently? Have you praised him for that? Christian, when you look at other Christians... Even when they wrong you, even when other Christians wrong you terribly, do you remember that they too haven't inherited a foreign righteousness? They too have inherited a righteousness that is not their own if they are in Jesus Christ. It's amazing how hard it is to hold a grudge against someone else when you meditate on the fact that if they're in Christ, they possess all of Christ's righteousness. This should propel us to radical unity. Well, on to our fourth and final point in verses 10 and 11. This shows us where our confidence in Christ leads to. You see, our faith in alone, in Christ alone, does not stay alone. It always produces something. Where do we find our, our confidence? Not in the flesh, but in knowing Christ and having his righteousness, which brings new life. Which brings new life. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice these these four connected realities which kind of summarize our union with Christ, knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All right, so just imagine, just understand this better. Imagine that you have a young couple that's getting married, right? And imagine that one of the future spouses is found out to just be incredibly rich. I mean, like, Jeff Bezos-type rich. Like, they're just crazy wealthy, right? And then imagine that the fiancé happens to find out to be incredibly poor. They aren't just poor, but they are in debt. They've got credit card debt, and they've got unpaid taxes. They've got fines that they need to pay to the government. They've got massive school loans. Whatever it is, they are just radically out of money. Well, when that couple gets married, all of the riches more than cover all of the debt. This is the picture of of Christ's righteousness that I've been arguing to you today, that it, it more than covers the debt of our sin. But here's the thing about that marriage. Any good marriage, you all know, is not just a transaction of money. No, the couple who unites begins to share all things with each other. The the newly married couple share in a relationship with each other. They know one another. They, They share in one another's strengths and their victories, even their greatest of victories. The sufferings that they experience are also shared together. And even over time, they become like one another. They begin to act like one another. Even in some ways, they seem to begin to look like one another. This is what Paul seems to be thinking about in verse 10. He's meditating on and describing this, this union that we have when we come to Christ. Not only do we receive all of Christ's righteousness when we are united to him, but we now share all things with him. Verse 10, we know him. We know Christ. We receive his victorious power over death as we are resurrected with him. The power of the resurrection is yours. Sin's curse has lost its hold on us, is what we just sang. Sin no longer has power in your life if you are in Christ. The power of Christ's resurrection over sin and death is yours in Jesus Christ. We share in his sufferings. As one person wrote, through our suffering, the significance of Christ's sufferings is shown to the world around us. And we we become like him in his death. Paul elsewhere will say in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The ultimate result of this dying to ourself, then, is verse 11. That we are then confident to attain a future resurrection. This is the glory of being united to Jesus Christ. Praise God, you are united to Christ. Well, we should conclude. Friends, where is your confidence today? Where is your confidence? Not where do you say your confidence is when asked, 
But where is it really? Where, where's your heart really? Where are you before God? Here's what I desire for our church here at First Point. What if we were a, a church that, that built a culture around the gospel of grace? What if we were always rejoicing in the Lord? What if we were people that knew the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and his righteousness? What if at the the blazing center of our church is the glory of Jesus Christ and his goodness, his righteousness, not our own? What if we placed no confidence in the flesh? Yes, our faith always leads to repentance. We're held accountable to that. It does. But our our joyful repentance comes from standing complete in Christ. You are complete in Jesus Christ. Hear this invitation to this as we close from the words of the old hymn by James Proctor. This is what he wrote. He said, Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done. Long, long ago. Until to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. So cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in Christ alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is finished. We praise you for that. Pray that we would be a church that glories in Christ, not in ourselves. Pray that this would radically change us as we are shaped by the grace of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name.